the past two and a half years, we have watched construction crews work tirelessly to build a brand new stadium that will host some of the biggest events in the Valley for years to come. And today, Allegiant Stadium is finally finished. It's a major milestone here in the Valley as the $1.8 billion venue will host concerts and serve as the home of the Raiders and the Rebels. Imagine spending that much money on a new state-of-the-art stadium and not be able to showcase it to the public. But Allegiant Stadium will continue to sit empty, at least for now. The team is still That's where the Las Vegas Raiders find themselves as they enter the 2020 NFL season. Last week, the team announced that they won't be hosting any fans this year. And they aren't alone. The Jets and Giants will also play inside an empty MetLife Stadium, as will the Green Bay Packers. Lambeau Field will be empty through at least October. The Packers have announced they will not host fans for at least the first two home games this season. On the field, COVID-19 has impacted a number of teams around the league, with 66 players choosing to opt out this season. The New England Patriots had nine players choose not to play this season, including three-time Super Bowl champion and team captain Donta Hightower. Kansas City lineman Laurent Duvernay-Tardif was one of the first players to publicly say that he wouldn't be suiting up this season. And Eagles receiver Marquise Goodwin chose his family's health over football. Coming to this decision, my wife and I just sat down and discussed, you know, what would be uh, the perfect scenario for going into this season. Because we, it was a lot of uncertainty going into this year, dealing with COVID-19 uh, and you know, going into my eighth year, just after having lost three babies and then being birthed our uh, rainbow baby this year, 2020, it's a blessing that I didn't want to, you know, screw up based off of my bad decision making. You know, too many times we put our job first before we actually think about my family. And so I, I felt the need that I made the decision that would behoove my family as opposed to just myself. We saw the virus spread throughout Major League Baseball as teams traveled city to city. Baseball, a sport where social distancing is part of the game. But now we're talking football, a sport that is driven by contact. Can we see the cap continue to grow with no fans? Can you have a Super Bowl with no fans? Jim Trotter is a veteran NFL reporter, and Sam Acho is the vice president of the National Football League Players Association. They join us on this episode of the Sports on Pause podcast. As we uh, said at the top, Jim Trotter is a longtime writer covering the NFL, now for NFL media, previously for Sports Illustrated, San Diego Union Tribune. You see him on the NFL Network, and certainly over his very distinguished career, you've seen him on other broadcast entities as well. On a personal note, Jim Trotter and I worked together for many years at Sports Illustrated, one of my favorite colleagues, and he joins us on the Sports on Pause podcast. Jim, um, let's start here. Where is your confidence level that the National Football League will play this year? Oh, I think they'll definitely start. I don't have any reservations about that. The only question is, will they finish? And that's the unknown at this point. I do think it's significant that the um, infection rate has been so low at least for this early portion of, of training camp, if you will. Now, granted, there hasn't been contact or anything like that, but um, the infection rate has been relatively low, even beneath the standards that the league had set up. So that's a positive. The concern I have is once you, if you get through this period and you get to the regular season, 
And now you've got players who are going home, who are going out, who are traveling. Then how does that impact the infection rate? So that's the unknown. And that's why I say I'm confident that the season will start on time, but I don't know what happens after that. With the issues Major League Baseball has had for all the reasons that you point out, and really, knock on wood, the lack of issues both the NBA and NHL has had, do you think uh, in the league office or among its owners, there's been some reservations on not choosing to explore a, a bubble further? You know, a bubble for the NFL seems really difficult from my perspective. When you're talking about with each team, 53 players, a practice squad, coaches, front office. I just don't see logistically how that works. Um, and I'm sure there are people smarter than me that could figure it out. But um, I have a hard time seeing that work in those numbers. From your reporting and sort of just talking to people around the league, what do you think the league thinks is realistic regarding any kind of attendance this year? You know, it's an interesting question, Richard. Um, You've had some owners say that they're going to have fans. You heard Jerry Jones say that, even if it's a limited number. And then you have other clubs like, you know, the Washington football team, which has said there will be no fans this year. And I believe the Raiders also said no fans this year. So my curiosity is how can one team say it will have fans and other teams say they won't? And the explanation, at least that I have received, is that it depends on the local government and the local officials. As and, and when I say local, I mean local and state to determine the how safe it is for fans to attend. But to me, and again, this is just my feeling. This is not the league's feeling or any of that. It is my feeling is that this is a political issue and not a medical issue. Because in my opinion, there should be a standard baseline for every team in every city in terms of what's acceptable and what's not in terms of the risk. And we know that some um, cities, some mayors, and some states, some governors are playing politics with this as it relates to some saying you don't have to wear a mask. They're not going to make it mandatory where other states are saying, yes, you have to wear masks if you're out. To me, those sorts of things should be uniform for every state. And unfortunately, it's not. So To answer your question, Richard, I don't get it, how you could have, how one team can talk about having fans and another one says no. It it just doesn't make sense to me. On the topic of fans, when I think of the Super Bowl and why you'd bid for it and why it's, it's lucrative for the league and for cities, it's because of a high number of fans, a high number of sponsors that get exposure because of a high number of media. Does the Super Bowl, the way it's presently constructed, does it work uh, given our realities now? Well, first of all, we're that, that's way down the line, so to speak. If the environment is the same as it is today, obviously it would not work because you would not have fans at the game in all likelihood um, and people aren't traveling. But you've also had medical professionals who were saying that we could have a vaccine potentially by October, November. I don't know what's true. I only know what I read. I only know what's reported. So while the Super Bowl is not that far away, it still remains far away, if that makes sense. So I think a lot of things could change between now and then. But under the current format, I can't see. And obviously, 
it would not be what that city had envisioned when, you know, it applied and, and won the, the rights for the Super Bowl. Jim, I think one of the interesting questions that we've, uh, I wouldn't say debated on here, but certainly discussed on here is transparency when it comes to the professional sports leagues. And I think each of these leagues has handled it differently, whether it's uh, how they've announced tests to individual players or individual staffers, uh, letting it be public or letting it be known if they've tested positive for COVID. How transparent do you expect the National Football League to be when it comes to uh, positive tests, asymptomatic positives, and negative tests? I'll answer it this way. I think there will be greater transparency because the Players Association is involved as well. And the players are taking this very seriously, at least from my reporting and the people that I've talked to and whatnot. But again, it is up to, um, as I understand it, it is up to the individual to report whether or not he is positive in this situation. And you can even say she too, because there are female coaches as well. So um, I do think there will be transparency. I do think the players are taking this seriously. I know that the Players Association has been very involved in this in terms of trying as best it can to ensure the safety of its players. So I do think we'll have a greater level of transparency as it relates to this than we do other things when it comes to the NFL. These training camps are all happening at the same time as the viability and prospect of college football being played in the fall or even in the spring or not at all is being mitigated in front of us. What's the impact on the NFL and their calendar uh, if the college football season in Power Five conferences doesn't end up happening? It's a great question. We don't know. A lot of things that are being asked now, there simply aren't answers for at this point uh, because we've never been through this before. What happens if um, ultimately, let's say the ACC and, and the SEC decide not to play? Will a Trevor Lawrence, who is projected to be the number one pick, decide uh, this summer that, you know what, I'm going to sit out, I'm going to sign with an agent, I'm going to start working out for next year? There's just no way to answer some of these questions. And that's why, you know, in some ways I was I was a little hesitant to even come on because I knew I couldn't give you guys answers to some of the <laughs> questions that you want because we don't have them. And those things are being discussed so far above my pay grade that those folks don't even know at this point. So without college football, how would it affect the NFL landscape? It affects it from the standpoint of preparing for next year's draft. And if you're a scout, uh, what are you scouting? You know, are you looking at last year's game tape to look at those underclassmen uh, who might be coming out next year? Remember, last season, Joe Burrow wasn't on anybody's list as a potential number one overall pick. Um, nobody had him as a Heisman hopeful. Nobody had him, you know, putting up, what was it, 60 touchdown passes in a season. And look what he did. And so there are going to be a lot of players, I think, who get hurt by this, just speaking from an athletic standpoint and a, a from a business standpoint. Because those players who would have had big years, who were not necessarily on the radar, won't be seen now or, or won't have an opportunity to distinguish themselves in that way. Well, I just wanted to actually follow because we're, we're peppering with things that you can't answer. I want to get your perspective on this because we have transformational change in all business industries, ways of life. What is the one aspect or narrative of all of this that you're really keen on looking at? and seeing how it plays out over the next 12 months because it could really change what the NFL looks like moving forward. 
Well, we know that the salary cap is going to have a base of $175 million next year. So that's a positive. It removes some of the uncertainty in terms of teams trying to prepare for next season. The thing that's interesting to me in all this from a business standpoint is the ways that what, what COVID-19 has done to the NFL and to other sports leagues, it has forced them to come up with creative ways for new revenue streams. And that's something that I find interesting because, for instance, you know, the NFL has talked about if there are fans in a stadium, no fans in the first X number of rows. And they're talking about putting up some sort of advertising there for sale. And some people have said, oh, you know, that's just the NFL being greedy and whatnot. Well, this is one time I would push back and say, no, it's not the NFL being greedy. It's the NFL being smart. If you're not going to have fans in there, you want to try and maximize your revenue streams. And those revenue streams affect the players as well in terms of the salary cap. So it is a smart move to try and create revenue by seats that are not going to be used. So that's the biggest thing that I have seen with COVID-19 from a business standpoint is, look, we know the NFL is going to suffer if it does not have fans in its stadiums because teams are going to lose out on that local revenue. And so how do they find ways to compensate for that? And it affects not just the owners again, but the players who receive, I believe, off the top of my head, the the figure is um, roughly 48%, 48 48.5% of all revenue. So that's going to be an issue. And how these teams and how the league generates more revenue or new revenue, how it thinks outside of the box, all of those things are going to determine part of its fiscal health. As someone who covers the league or has covered the league for many, many years. So you're saying I'm old? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I am. You're young at heart, Jim. uh, That's all that matters. So as someone who's covered the league for quite a long time, you are going to be as a media person potentially going through, if you're in a stadium, COVID-19, testing, all sorts of medical protocols. At this point, what could you tell our listeners regarding what the media will or will not be allowed to do if NFL games start in September? You know, Richard, uh, again, that's a great question because, look, I'll put it to you this way. I'm not sure that we're even going to be at games based on how this is, is setting up. Now, we might be the first couple of weeks to cover the the uniqueness of not having fans in the stadium and that sort of thing. But right now it appears, and I'm saying right now because obviously everything is subject to change, it appears that we're not going to have any exclusive access to players or coaches before or after games. And everything is going to be done by Zoom calls or remotely, virtually. And if that is the case, then you have to ask yourself as a media company, what is the value in actually traveling to a city, sitting in the stadium, watching a game, and then doing group interviews via Zoom calls or or whatever it may be? I don't know that there is great value in that as a media outlet if you are watching your bottom line. Part of the beauty of the way of the NFL, as we have always known it, is that after a game, if I want to go talk to a player one-on-one away from the rest of the media, I have access to do that. Well, you won't have that now. You know, you have to rely on your phone and your contacts, your relationships, those sorts of things. So I'm fascinated personally as someone who covers the NFL of what this is going to look like and what my job is going to be. Uh, going forward, because truthfully, I don't know at this point. You know, there's an aspect of 
this that I'm also fascinated by, but I also at times think to myself that it's somewhat trivial. But I wonder your perspective in, in covering the league as close as you do. What's the impact to the actual level of play of all of this? Are there situations, teams, organizations, players that are better situated to get through this and navigate this? And, and how will it impact the performance that we end up seeing? No, there's no question about that. It, it's it's not unlike what was it, 2011, after the lockout, when the teams came back. And typically the teams who have stability, who have coaches who have been in place for multiple years, who have systems that have been in place for multiple years, who have players who have been together for multiple years, those teams should be better off than other clubs who have new coaches, who are installing new systems, all those sorts of things. Because remember, there has been no off-season work on the field among players and coaches this year. The first time that many of these teams or that these teams saw their rookies was when they showed up for training camp. I believe that it is the established clubs who have coaches, players, systems that have been in place for multiple years that are going to do well. And that's why I think so many people, besides the obvious reasons that these teams have talent, but that's the obvious reason that teams or that people are saying, outsiders are saying, teams like the Chiefs, the 49ers again, you can talk about the Steelers, the Saints, all of these clubs are going to be projected as favorites this season because of that. There's not any newness, if you will, and they should be able to pick up and hit the ground running better than these other clubs. Well, there's been no off-season work for a lot of teams, but there certainly has been a lot of off-season work for you. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us a little bit of perspective as you are one of the people who we all will be going to for some concrete answers on something that is so fluid moving forward. He is Jim Trotter at Jim Trotter underscore NFL is how you can follow him continuing to break news on what all of this means for the sport. Thanks so much, Jim. Thanks for having me. Wish I could have given you more. And thanks again to Jim Trotter, who's a bit hard on himself and not being able to answer all our questions, but even just the fact that he's able to synthesize that with every answer, there are more questions, lets you know that this is really a big ordeal and that he's thought through all of the potential ramifications. So we thank him again for giving that perspective. One thing we do know is that the players themselves are thinking through all this and often making a decision that's in the best case for them. Nate Soldier, C.J. Mosley, Devin Funches, Damian Williams, all are not playing NFL football this fall, no matter what happens. So what does that mean for the guys who are playing? And how hard is it? And how hard of a decision is it for the guys who opt out? Well, we caught up with the VP of the NFLPA, Sam Etcho, who has that very decision in front of him every day to put all that in context for us. That's next on the Sports on Pause podcast. And we are now joined by Sam Ocho, who's been talking about you know this issue and what players have faced for quite a while. But Sam, I'm going to be honest. When I saw the list of names of players that decided they weren't comfortable with playing, I was a bit surprised at the profile of them. Can you detail the level of, of sacrifice that making a decision like that endures? 
I mean, as we saw, there are a number of high-profile players who decided to opt out and also some not-as-high-profile players who decided to opt out. And what that points to to me is it points to an issue that really transcends your class, so to speak, in football, right? Some players, they get paid so much money, a lot of things don't affect them. Some players in the other vein get paid so little, a lot of things don't affect them. But what we've seen with this opt-out is that this opt-out affects everybody. And so what we saw is a number of players, both high-ranking and lower-ranking, starters and backups, first year and 10th year, decide to opt-out and choose their health over a paycheck. And many times, as we mentioned, these paychecks were, were large paychecks. Sam, this is, a, this is an issue that you've obviously been discussing for a while. That's the sort of the issue of activism and the nexus of activism in sports. Uh, certainly everyone on this podcast understands that politics are intrinsically connected to sports. I think those who don't believe that are just uh, intentionally being ignorant about the, the history of North American sports. So that goes into what will be, on top of COVID-19, of course, a major story in the National Football League this year, which is the nexus of activism and the league. On a macro level, what do you expect regarding player activism and particularly visible player activism that would appear on Sundays if the league indeed does play? Yeah, well, I would expect something similar to what you've seen in other uh, leagues in North America, where you've seen players in the MLB take a knee and wear shirts that signify whether Black Lives Matter or fighting against police brutality. I, I would say you're going to see something similar to the NHL, where they have paid homage to uh, some of the people who have been fighting for social justice. I think you would see something similar to the NBA, where you have teams who are wearing names on the back of their jerseys and shirts that are saying, hey, we need to stop oppressing people of color and Black people in America. And so in the NFL, I think you're going to see something similar. Obviously, our season has been a little bit is a little bit behind other seasons, right? Other seasons were in the middle of their season, they got delayed. We're just starting. And so I'm expecting a big splash where there be players collectively taking a knee or more than that, actually players more than anything, being involved in their community to make real change in addition to the protest. It's funny when you mention those actions by different leagues and the amount of kneeling we've seen in different sports and you know, some of it is really um, important and, and some of it, you know, at times some is performative. Originally, when Colin Kaepernick kneeled in 2016, it quickly became a political issue and was used uh, to rally a base. We're now, once again, in an election year. When players make a stance and make it obvious as to why black lives should matter, this time around, would you appreciate more outward support from the league and the owners talking back to the fact that it was co-opted and made a political issue and not an issue of human and social rights? Yes, it is a human rights issue, number one. Uh, but also number two, I think we have seen a little bit, not necessarily from ownership, but from Roger Goodell, who's the commissioner of the NFL. We've seen a little bit of the NFL, for lack of better terms, walking back on some of their statements from years ago. Three years ago, everyone was criticizing Colin Kaepernick and anyone else who took a knee because they said they were disrespecting the flag. And now, as, as Roger Goodell said, hey, I was wrong. We, the National Football League, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people. We, the National Football League, admit we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest. We, the National Football League, believe black lives matter. I personally protest with you and want to be part of the much needed change 
in this country. Without black players, there would be no National Football League. And the protests around the country are emblematic of the centuries of silence, inequality, and oppression of black players, coaches, fans, and staff. We are listening. I am listening. And I will be reaching out to players who have raised their voices and others on how we can improve and go forward for a better and more united NFL family. So we've seen that from Roger Goodell. What we haven't seen that is from some of the NFL owners. And the reason why is that in all reality, some people in America, including ownership, they just don't believe that. They don't understand the, the idea and the concept of systemic racism and, and systemic oppression and um, implicit bias. And so I think that's what we're probably not going to see. You're not going to see too many owners stepping up and saying, I was wrong or they were wrong about Cap. But you will see some. You will see some. One of the major stories clearly in sports right now is the the cancellation of some major American college football conferences deciding not to play this year. And I'm wondering from your perspective, do you think that will have any impact on the National Football League and how some players might approach COVID-19 who are pros? Or do you see those two as totally separate things, particularly, obviously, the major one is that College students, of course, are college football players, are not paid. They are certainly workers, but not honestly compensated as such. And, you know, maybe they are just two different stories. But it, it is a very big story right now in North America with uh, the Big Ten Conference and some other major conferences deciding not to play. I don't see any correlation between what the NCAA did and what the NFL is going to do. The NFL is its own entity, and they have their own uh, set of issues that they care about, right? They have their own constituents. They care about the billions of dollars that are on the line if, if games aren't played. And yes, the NCAA has similar goals and desires, but just because the NCAA canceled some of their games doesn't mean the NFL is going to cancel. And even, even within the NCAA, people don't talk about that. Two conferences, two of the major conferences decided to cancel or delay their fall sports, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. But there's three other major conferences and what people call the Power Five conferences that are essentially saying the show must go on. And the reason why is because because football and is such a big moneymaker for those teams. And so even within the NCAA, they're not going to let what one conference does affect what they do. So the NFL, also in the same vein, will have no regard with, for what the NCAA does. They're going to uh, try and have the show go on, and, and in their mind, it's for good reason. The one correlation I do see between the two is you know how much agency NCAA players have found um, and how vocal they've been. And I, I think there is a through line in seeing how NFL players have banded together and there's been strength in number. But historically, when players were trying to use their collective leverage, you didn't have quarterbacks as part of the conversation. But now with Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson, you do. Do you think because more stars are starting to openly talk about these very serious issues, both in society but for the players at large, you do have a little bit more leverage in terms of getting what you want from the league and its owners? I think we do. Recently, we saw the superstars of the NFL, Patrick Mahomes, people like Deshaun Watson, Russell Wilson, speaking up and speaking out, uh, essentially saying to the NFL, to Roger Goodell, hey, yes, we want to play. Yes, racism is real. Let's do something about it. You were wrong. 
And so we saw the needle move. It's funny, I wrote a book that comes out this fall. It's called Let the World See You, How to Be Real in a World Full of Fakes. And a book, it's available at samachobook.com and uh, for pre-order. But it's interesting because in that book, I talk about this idea of activism in sport and what that means. And there was a time when me and my teammates in Chicago, we decided to protest social injustice. But the thing was, it wasn't just one guy. It was the entire team. It was our star quarterback, Mitch Trubisky. He was on uh, the Social Justice Council. It was our star defensive tackle, Akeem Hicks, who was on this Social Justice Council, who not only were we protesting, but we also decided to actually donate money and donate time. It was all the star players of the team, and that's what gave our movement, for lack of better terms, more credence. If you're moving with the bigger names, right? Every, you, you know, talked earlier about um, sometimes these acts of protests are a little bit for show, but sometimes if you have a big enough name, all you need to do is do something for show to show up and say, hey, this is, yes, I'm protesting, but the fact that I protest, it gives the entire movement a little bit of a push, right? It's almost like a, a sailboat. It gives it wind. And so, yes, I think that Patrick Mahomes and uh, Russell Wilson and Deshaun Watson, these African-American star quarterbacks stepping up and speaking out has made and will continue to make a huge difference when it comes to the movement and social injustice or human rights, these issues as we, as we see them. Sam, here's the last one for me. And I would think that so much of your answer might really depend on, on the, the city itself as to the, the NFL fan who's processing this. You played in the league for a long time. So, so our listeners know Arizona, Chicago, Buffalo, Tampa, I believe you're officially a free agent, and you're from Dallas. So you really basically have sort of covered a lot of America. You've sort of seen different kinds of cities, which obviously have uh, very different politics and et cetera. The national anthem, of course, remains a hot-button issue, and there's always going to be people who see kneeling as an attack on the flag as, a, as opposed to uh, using that moment to highlight systemic racism, police brutality, and, and other truths that are out there. Do you think the last couple of months has changed the minds of any NFL fans who in some cases in some cities are very, very conservative as to looking at the players as sort of human beings and people as opposed to merely objects or lines on a, on a fantasy football chart? I probably didn't ask that question great, but do you sort of see where I'm getting at? Yeah, I do. And, and I think more than anything – I don't think people are having the conversation, but we should have the conversation of, of is kneeling about the flag, right? Like people are presuming that kneeling is about the flag, but really like, is it about the flag? The people who went to war for this country went to war for the country's freedoms. If you go to war for any country, you go to war for the freedom of that country, the freedom to gather, the freedom of religion, the freedom to protest peacefully. And so anyone who says that someone who peacefully protests during the national anthem is against the country and against the flag, I believe that it's a little bit ignorant. It's an ignorant viewpoint. Um, it's a stubborn viewpoint. It's, it's a viewpoint that, that stops short of, of what protest is all about. And so I think that's the number one issue. Now to your question of, do I think people's opinions have changed? I do. I really do. I think there are so many people who have been in this mindset that racism isn't, doesn't exist and doesn't affect them. And they've seen so many people speak up and speak out. And I talk about it in my book as well. Growing up in a, uh, an all, I went to an all white school, but I went to an all black church and I grew up in a Nigerian household. So imagine just all the different <laughs> uh, things I was experiencing. But I saw it at a young age, how white people and black people, the interaction always seemed to be different. And so not everyone has seen that, but now because of COVID, 
people are not at work. People are on social media. They saw George Floyd murdered. Um, they saw Ahmaud Arbery murdered, two African-American men, one murdered by the police, one murdered by a group of white men. They saw these people murdered. They saw or at least heard about Breonna Taylor being murdered. There were no more distractions, right? Sports was no longer a distraction. And now people have almost, their collective consciousness has risen where they can say, oh, wow, something does need to be done. Now the question is, what? The question I have for you is, you know, understanding and knowing football culture, occupational hazard, that's just part of it is putting your health at risk. It's, it's, it's baked into it so much so that guys don't want to lose a snap or a rep because they don't want to give someone else an opportunity. So they'll play through things that maybe with better judgment, they shouldn't. But this virus is different what is the level of concern with the long-term risk and side effects that potentially exposing yourself to COVID-19 is among the players yeah well the virus is different but it isn't and here's what I mean by that many players when we sign up to play American football we are consciously knowing that there is a risk involved innately we know that what exactly is that risk it's somewhat calculated. We don't specifically say, well, I may get a concussion and, and get dementia or I may have a broken leg. I may not be able to walk. We don't say that, but we know that the risk of injury is possible. That knowledge has been calculated and baked into our decision to play. Yes, I still want to play. And now with COVID, you said it's a little bit different, but it's not because that's just another added risk into the decision making process. That's why you saw 50 some odd players choose to opt out because the decision of playing with COVID along with the other risks, it outweighed the possible rewards. And so COVID is just another risk factor, almost like in 2011, when a lot of the concussion discussion came to the forefront, people got a lot more aware of what concussions were doing. And now we've seen a large rate of early retirements in players who were in their prime, right? There's new information. There's information of of concussions, information of of COVID. It's like with me, I have a financial advisor and we're figuring out, okay, do I buy a house? Do I rent? Do I go mortgage? Whatever. And, And and it's funny, we, we were trying to figure out what the best decision was to make, and I had my opinion, but they added new information that actually changed my decision. And so the new information, they said, man, the interest rates are super low, you should actually do it this way rather than that way, changed the decision that I would otherwise naturally have chosen the other thing. And so that's what COVID has, has been. It's been this um, extra layer that can maybe change the decision of players, but we don't know all the information. We don't know the long-term effects. We don't know what really this pandemic could cost us. Um, All we know is that we want to play. And I think a lot of players are willing to take that risk. Well, Sam, Acho is from a Nigerian household, so he clearly missed the memo that he was supposed to be a lawyer or a doctor, but he's done well for himself as he's a player. I got my MBA. I got my MBA, so we're not good from the – you know what I mean? So I still got the – the, the MBA and the you know number one international business school won the Campbell Trophy the academic cosmic trophy so I still got my you checked that box you checked that box so go ahead and brag on yourself more than anything I'm excited about this book that honestly I'm thinking it's going to change the world you talk about this Nigerian heritage and background and I play in the NFL but my parents were like dude you should have been a doctor or a nurse come on what are you doing so I I decided <laughs> to go write a book um, and so, and it's called let the world see you and I mean that book is for anybody who wants to understand more what it's like to be seen, to be known, and to be loved. And for me, I was playing in the NFL, and the words kind and compassionate never really come up. But that's who I am. I'm a kind and compassionate human being, and I played for nine years, going on my 10th year. And so the whole book is this premise of this idea of um, what does it mean to be seen, and and how do you get out of hiding? And so it's for anybody who um, really wants to just get their understanding of of, – 
and being real and being authentic. And so anybody wants to, that wants to learn more, go to samachobook.com. It's available for pre-order now. You can actually get a, the first couple chapters for free before anybody else. So it's, uh, I'm excited. Well, the parents can't brag on you and say you're a doctor and a nurse, but now they can brag on you and say that you're an author, which is a real, real flex for parents. So congratulations on that and keep doing the important work, uh, both in the game of football and beyond. Well, thank you all so much for having me. Look forward to being back on again soon. Well, our thanks to Jim Trotter and Sam Acho for their insight and wisdom. And now we turn to our last word segment where we leave you with something we've read or heard or watched that can help educate you a little bit better when it comes to COVID-19. And my choice this week is a piece in Scientific American, How to Evaluate COVID-19 News Without Freaking Out. And disinformation expert Carl Bergstrom gives readers tips on how to stay calm and to make sense of pandemic news. And that's pretty important because since March If you are someone who is uh, active on social media, you have seen plenty of disinformation and misinformation. And so it's a good piece to sort of center you when it comes to all sorts of content floating at you. Donovan, what do you have this week? This whole time I've been active on what it seems like daily online calls, whether it's Skype or Zoom or Microsoft Teams. Uh, I'm really getting sick of them, quite frankly. But I love the fact that the forum was used uh, and is being used to help patients. Stat News has a great read about how a Zoom forum is changing the way ICU doctors treat desperately ill COVID-19 patients. It's a piece written by Ron Winslow. So I love the fact that technology that we have to keep contact with us in our culture right now as, as we have less personal contact is helping doctors treat patients in a real, real way. We really want to thank you again for continuing to listen, to like, to favorite, to subscribe, to share. Even though sports are back and they're not all on pause, you seem to be interested. So thank you so much. Please continue to follow all of the social distancing measures as we continue to roll back into our new normal, whatever that will be. Continue to take care of yourself and each other.